Okay, so today I brought with me part of my library. Not all the books, but some of them. <clears throat> We're in Exodus chapter 21. And I've been looking forward, not as in excitedly looking forward, but as in actually looking ahead to see where we're going in Exodus and what all is in here. Because there are pieces in Exodus that honestly, in the church, we don't talk much about these. Like we, we really pick a few spots and then that's what we talk about. So today we're reading from Exodus chapter 21, the first 27 verses. And my Bible has a heading where it says, the law concerning servants I titled the sermon, Six Years a Slave, and you'll see why. So um, let's just read it, but this is not usually like, I mean, maybe your devotions include these. I mean, I read through the Bible as a discipline and as a study, but when I'm just reading devotional, encouraging things, I don't generally tend to look at these particular scriptures. So, so let's read it. It says, Exodus 21, starting in verse 1. Now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife, and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will, not go out, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. And if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, like, I mean, honestly, really, in America, in your Christianity, how many times do you hear the phrase, if a man sells his daughter, like, really, do you hear this? Like, it feels so foreign to me to even think about these words, right? And so he says, <clears throat> we're in verse 7 still. If a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has dealt deceitfully with her. And if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. And if he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out free without paying money. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. And he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. He who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. If men contend with each other and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and he does not die, but is confined to his bed. If he rises again and walks about outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted. He shall only pay for the loss of his time and shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. And if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished. 
Notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his property. If men fight and hurt a woman with child, so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished according, accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. That's as far as I'm reading today. So when I read these and I think about what sort of culture this is describing, like my first response, I think is probably a, a fairly common one in the Western world. Um, for us, we look at it and we're like, say what? Like if you beat a servant and he gets like almost dies, but doesn't die for the, in the first day, but dies a couple days later, uh, you're fine because you owned the servant and no punishment. But then stuff like if you beat the servant, that's one thing. But if you accidentally, um, you know, remove an eye or knock out a tooth, then you let the servant go free. And so I, I, to me, I read these things and it just feels very, very foreign to me. So what I wanted to do as I was reading about this and considering this, and, you know, we're going to go to some other places farther on into Exodus where there will be things that because of our new covenant with Jesus, with the Father, through Jesus with the Father, there are some things we're going to see that make a lot more sense to us because we talk about them and they're part of our faith. But things like this, we don't talk about a whole lot. And so occasionally when there is something, you know, some issue like sex trafficking happening, uh, happening or we're dealing with the abolition of abortion or something like that, we will come back and we'll look at the issue of slavery a little bit. But it's not a living issue for us because we really don't think that we know any slaves. And so I'm not actually going to make, try to make the case today uh, that you probably know slaves, even though if you look at our uh, financial things, the, you know, the Bible says that the borrower is servant to the lender and things like that. So there's many ways to look at slavery. I don't even want to do that as much as I just literally want us to bend our brains and think about slavery as an actual issue. Because in some ways, just this kind of slavery, servitude, working for, you know, being bought and sold and things like this, um, we are probably only a couple generations removed. If you think about when slavery ended in America, how slavery still existed for quite a while in other places, like in a world that for 6,000 years had slavery in it, we are some of the first generations to truly think, this is ridiculous. What are they talking about? This is so far removed from my experience. This is not the way humanity works. It's not, it's not right. And so I wanted to think about that. So take a few notes here. Um, or not, you don't have to take the notes. Take note of these things. Uh, in verse two, when it says, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. 
Now, if you go over and look in Leviticus 25, I'm not turning there, but Leviticus 25 has another whole section on the law to do with slavery, and it actually has them being released every 50th year and does not mention again every, every um, seventh year being free, as it says here. And so I'm not quite sure how the rabbis interpreted that or how they dealt with this. But what I do see is that the entirety of Israel were slaves not very long ago in Egypt. And now they're coming out and he's literally saying, if one of you takes a slave, and so this six years a slave and then the seventh year free reminds me of the whole indentured service, servant thing where you, know, you have some guy over in uh, another country and he's thinking, I would love to make it to America. I would love to make it. Um, over there, and so someone comes along and says, well, why don't you, I'll pay your way, and for six years you'll work with me, and then after you serve me, or six or seven, whatever the price was, and then you'll be free. And a lot of times that would be something, maybe even a, um, a parent would say to the blacksmith, say, look, here's my son, he needs a trade, can he serve you for six or seven years? And then after that, he'll be free to do whatever. You don't have to pay him, just take care of him, room and board, and train him. And so for six or seven years, this guy really has no life of his own. He's working for the blacksmith. And so he's at the mercy of the blacksmith. So if the blacksmith is a God-fearing man and is kind and gentle, that's great. If he's not, well, so be it. And he goes and he suffers through. But at the end of that time, he has a trade that he can ply. And so there's a certain level to this that we can understand because we are even willing to go and work for almost nothing somewhere in order to learn something that will then enable us to later be able to have our own business. So we do this with internships. We do it in a lot of different ways. We hardly ever call ourselves indentured servants these days. Um, I don't know if other countries have this still at all or not, but we, we almost ever, never do. We, we will have um, volunteers, we'll have interns, we'll have people in training, and you will literally have a, a, um, a reimbursement package or, uh, that's designed to not really pay you that much while you're learning, and, and then the more you learn, the more you get paid. So there's certain levels to this that we can totally understand and see. But then there's other pieces to it that we don't understand and see. And so as, a, as, a, as an American, and then you know, for myself, like I, I look at my own lineage, and I don't know how far back I'd have to go to actually find slaveholders. Um, for most people in America, because of the way m marriages happen and, and the lineages go and you multiply how many ancestors you have so quickly, like you, you don't realize that it's not just a mom and a dad, but it, like, it just keeps going and going and going, you will find eventually a branch somewhere that is probably a slaveholder or related to slaveholders. Like we were just digging down the, the citizen Potawatomi line and then we got kind of sidetracked off of another line and we found the, the, where it connects into the South and into slaveholder. So like my boys are both the oppressed Irish, they're the oppressed citizen Potawatomi, they're the oppressed Anabaptists. There's so many oppressors in, uh, they were oppressed in so many ways if you go back, but then they were also the oppressor in a few places. And so it's fascinating because that I think is the case for most of us. We don't always realize, we want to claim one heritage, not understanding that we literally, all the sins and all the strengths of all mankind are represented in our ancestry and they come down to us. And so there is not one of us that is so much a victim that we were never an oppressor. And there's not one of us that was so much an oppressor in our ancestry that we were never a victim. 
So this is a whole side, this is a side talk when it, it has to do with genealogy that I find fascinating. But so, but in my, in my own experience, I'm like, well, we were Anabaptists, we were Amish, we did our own work, we did not have slaves, so I don't even understand how this works. But at the same time, some of us basically sold everything we had in the old country in order to be able to come to the United States. And sometimes we landed here with almost nothing. And so we would do things where we would work for someone else and develop their farmland and their things for a certain number of years until we would then be allowed to start our own because they were paying off some debt or whatever. And so there is a certain level to this that I think is still around where we are willing to trade our physical labor for something. But with the Hebrew servant, and, and this we see you know, later, there were other scriptures where it talks about you know, what to do if someone is, is not an, a Hebrew servant, but he's a, he's a Canaanite or he's somebody else. And so these scriptures, by the way, 150 years ago, were heavily relied upon by the Christian believers in the South who were trying to make the argument for slavery. And so, but I just found that fascinating. And then if you go down to... That verse six, where it talks about the doorpost, the, if, if the servant says, I plainly says, I don't want, you know, I love my master, my wife, my children. I, want, I do not want to go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges and he brings him to the door and he puts the all through his, through his ear and like marks him as a, he's a bond servant for life. Like that's who he's going to be. He's not going to be a free man ever. He belongs to this man. He has, he has given that. And so if you think about that, there's probably something in here that, is, um, that has to do with the way we are connected to Christ, that we, we literally, at some point when we were baptized, when we were coming to the Lord, it's like we're putting our ear to the doorpost and saying, I don't want to go free from you, Lord. I don't want to go do my own thing. I want to do what you have me to do. I want you to be my master. And so what's, what's nice about that relationship is that there is a many-faceted relationship. We're not only slaves, but we're also the lamb that the shepherd has come and has rescued. We're also his friend. We're also, according to Hebrews, he's not ashamed to call us his brothers. And so we have this family relationship. We have this many faceted, you know, he's our shepherd. He's our captain of our salvation. It's not just one thing. If, if, if our entire Christianity is just that I'm a slave and, and Christ is the master, uh, then we're not fully understanding everything that's in the scripture. But in order to help us understand little pieces of it, God gives us these little glimpses. And so we see this because, you know, if you think of the psalmist when he says, I would rather be a gatekeeper in the house of the Lord than anywhere else. And so, you know, if I can just be in your house, Lord, if you'll just let me serve you in some way. And so this is something that will happen. It's a cry of the Christian heart. will be like, I, I have come, I have tasted, I have seen that you're good. I just want to be here. I don't want to go out there. And so that's one thing. So you have this slave who's willingly saying, I don't want to leave. Now, I can imagine that there were also scenarios that were very difficult um, with, with this, these issues. And so I don't want to over-romanticize it or glamorize it. But when you get down to verse 7, it talks about a man selling his daughter to be a female slave, and you keep reading, and you're like, did he sell her as a slave, or did he betroth her as a wife? Like, what actually happened? And, and it, so it brings up a whole other set of questions for us, um, and the ones that we're really not prepared to answer um, about what can he buy a wife? Like what just happened? And it seems to me kind of shocking to think of the way this relationship works. And so it is good for us to think about our own perspective on how we come together in marriage, what that means, 
in the new covenant, when we're representing Christ as the groom and the church as the bride, and we're, we're representing that picture, what does that mean? How do we respond to each other as husband and wife, as spouses? There's a lot of stuff in here to be thinking about because we're looking at what's happening here. And I think there's a similar thing happening um, with this whole dealing about slavery as there is with the way Paul writes about um, the marriages and, and relationships in the New Testament. There are some things that we have no concept for what their culture was like and what they actually believed. And so sometimes what we read, like the things I just read now, we read that and go, I can't believe, that is so harsh. But a person in that culture might read it and say, I cannot believe they're being so lenient and kind. What is this? Slaves don't have rights. And so it is very possible that we're not understanding this properly because we have no cultural reference to actually get it, right? That's possible. But now what, what was fascinating to me is in the pieces I read, and I wanted to point this out, verse 16 says, he who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. There are some things where, where the law says, if you do this, then restore sevenfold or whatever. So if you wanted to make the argument that you could steal a sheep or kidnap a man and sell them off to someone else, and it's about the same because, you know, the slavery thing, it was very different because if you stole a sheep, you had to pay back sevenfold. But if you kidnapped a man and were trying to sell him or he's found in your possession, you were put to death. That was, it was a very different thing. So it's little nuances like this that we have to see and, and grasp and say, okay, somehow God is after justice. God is looking for justice and he is bringing it in a way that to you and I, looking back, we're like, I'm mean, just honestly, like the whole week as I've been looking at this, I'm going, slavery? Like for real? Like what is this? And so, but this is, so the kidnapping thing I think is important for us to see there. You see the beating that happens. You see this, this at the very end of what I just read, I think, you know, would a slave, like what sort of a situation would a slave have to be in to be like, I wish my master would poke my eye out so I could go free. Like, you know, and, and, and you think, well, what kind of a, risk is this that I'm running, having a tooth knocked out or an eye damaged, destroyed. And and the law says I'll be free if that happens. Like I'm, I'm taking that risk. Like that feels very dangerous. And so with all of this, I just wanted us to think about what we read. And this is true for a lot of the other pieces is that sometimes we have to try to put ourselves somewhere else to truly understand. I think that there's a coming a day when people in civilized nations may very well look back and say they were killing their babies. How were they doing that? That's ridiculous. What could happen? What would make? And, 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 and for us who were here, we're like, well, yeah, people did that. It was wicked. We know, but it happened. We look back and we have a, what we believe is a moral objection to slavery. We have a moral objection to taking of another one's life. But let's say that you are a believer in the 1850s in America and you're trying to make the case that slavery has to end. Can you say we have a moral obligation or a, a, a moral problem with slavery, that it's an issue. 
So here's the kind of thing. So I just, what I just read here, you can go through the Old Testament and read all the things about slavery. You can go to the New Testament. So let's go over to uh, 1 Timothy 6 and read a section here. And let's just say that you are or your brother is a slave owner in the South back in the 1850s and you read this. And you have people on your plantation that are trying to escape or whatever. And then you read this. So 1 Timothy Oh. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 1, says, Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. Verse 2, And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. So basically saying if you're a slave and your master is a believer, don't despise him because he's a believer and he's your master. And so, so these are the two things that he just said. Teach and exhort these things. And if you look in verse 3, it says, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud knowing nothing but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain from such withdraw yourself. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. Okay, so... In what I just read, I've read this many, many times. I never, ever was considering this in the, in the context of a Christian slave owner. Who literally, because literally, it says, you know, if, you, if, you're, if, you're, if, if you're bond servant, you're under the yoke, count your masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And then it says, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words... Like, so what, wait, what? So am I saying that as a believer, you're a, and, I, and, and you come to Christ and you're a slave, and if I tell you that, you know, um, you will know the truth, the truth will set you free, the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed, and I start talking to you about freedom, am I talking heresy? Because I'm telling you, this is the case that the Christians made in the 1840s and 50s in America. They looked at the scripture and said, nowhere in scripture does it say that slavery by itself is immoral? It says certain things you do to slaves are immoral. It said that there are certain ways you must treat your slaves, but nowhere does it say slavery is immoral. And then they could read through all of this and all, all the passages of slavery in the Bible, and, and I have a book here where he did just that. So this is the book by Bishop John Henry Hopkins. He was the grandfather in our movie, We Three Kings. So he wrote this book, The American Citizen. It was released in 1857, just a couple years before the Civil War. So he's a bishop in the Episcopalian or the Anglican Church in Vermont. And as he's there, he, is, he gets to, so he's talking about the American citizen and he's trying to give you a complete rounding of everything that an American citizen ought to do. A believing, a Christian American citizen, what should you believe? So I'm gonna read this because I think for you, um, for us. So first of all, so I'm not reading it all in order. He wrote quite a bit about this, but here's a, here's a, 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 a couple paragraphs. 
For myself, I can truly say that I have no sympathy with those who depreciate the Negro race below the true standard of humanity. I repudiate with all my heart the infidel hypothesis which denies that God hath made of one blood all the nations of the earth. And so he says this. He says, you know, a Negro nation race is just as, as much one blood as, as everyone else. So he says that. But when you read through it, you're like, do you really believe that? Because then of the other things, from our perspective, we would have a lot of problems with Bishop Hopkins. Because on a daily life-to-life you know, basis, like one of the cases he makes in here is like, if we want to deal with the slavery issue, let's go ahead and let's tax everyone so much per person everywhere in the United States, because that will allow us in this many years to send all the slaves back to Liberia and let them be their own nation. Because, he says, as long as they stay here, they will never be able to rise past the... the, um, the I'm, I'm losing a word, but basically the expectations and the, the, the racism of the other people in their countries. They will never be able to rise past that. So we might as well put them back to Liberia where they can thrive. And then he makes the case that they are better off because they've been slaves because now they've heard the gospel. And so they will be taking the gospel back. And so he just, he, he just goes on and on. And if you, if you think of someone who's spouting their own wisdom, well, this is the guy, like, and he had a lot of other thoughts that you and I would actually agree with. But then he had a few things that you're like, say what? But in his day and in his time with slavery being an actual issue, these were positions he had. We'll read some more from here, but first I wanted to turn to, uh, to this book. So this is 12 Years a Slave, and this was released in 1854. So somewhere about 1840-ish, young Solomon Northrup. Now his father had been a slave, but his father, when his father's master had died, he had released him and all of his children. And so he was a free man. So he's second generation freedman. His father had been a farmer, had done well. Solomon gets married, has his own farm. His wife is able to cook well. So she does a lot of specialty cooking for big events, like for um, whenever the you know, political events and stuff happen in New York. She's up there cooking for them at different uh, hotels and stuff and makes a good living. He, uh, Solomon's able to play the violin, so he makes a good living with that. Plus, they have the farm together. And so now they have a number of children. So they have three children at this point. He's 31 years old. And on a, on a weekend, his wife is off cooking for a big event. And so he's kind of, everything at the farm is taken care of. He has no place to go play right now. So he's walking around town and he's just looking, what else could I do? do to earn a bit of money. And so at different times, he's done things like where he would uh, take his team and he would do a lot of hauling for someone. It reminds you of like Uber or Lyft or something, you know? So he's like doing all these different, he's done a lot of different things. So he's, he's walking around town looking for something to do. He runs into these two fellows who say, hey, um, you play the violin? He's like, yes, I do. And they said, we have this event. We have this, like, uh, this show that we weren't trying to take on the road where we're doing this, this whole thing, and we would love it if you came along and you played your violin for us. And so they, they, they take it on the road, and so he goes with them, and like, as they're going, they're like, well, we really need to get, we, we're headed to uh, Washington, D.C. And so, um, so in Washington, D.C. is the circus that actually employs us, and so we, wanted to be, we need to be back by a certain time. And so we probably just need to cancel a bunch of the next shows. And so they don't do the show. Like they had promised him good pay. So they finally arrive in Washington, D.C. But before they get there, they're like, you know what? Um, Washington, D.C. is not a, um, 
it's not a free state. And so you need to get your papers to prove that you are a free man before you go into Washington, D.C., just to make sure that nothing happens to you. And so he's like, oh, okay, hadn't thought of that. So he goes, gets his papers all signed and everything. He's a free man. And then they head down to Washington, D.C. He never does see the... Um, um, the circus that they're part of, but they're waiting for it. And then uh, on the day that they arrive there, one of the generals, I'm trying to remember which one had actually passed away. One of the founding fathers had passed away about that time. Like, so someone that was famous in the previous several wars. And so this huge parades are happening. They're going everywhere. And the two men that he's with, they're just waiting for the next day. And so as, he, as they're waiting, they would go to these, these different taverns and saloons and they would buy drinks. Well, he's a black man, so he can't go inside. And so they would bring him a drink out to him. And so he would drink it and then they would keep on chatting and walking around town, seeing everything that was happening. And so as evening is coming on, they go to another um, tavern like that. They bring out the drink for him. He drinks it. They start heading back to the house because now it's getting on. It's actually evening already. It's late. And he's, he's, he starts not feeling well. And so he goes to his quarters where he's sleeping and he just starts feeling really, really bad. He's very, very thirsty. So he starts, he goes, finds the kitchen, he's getting water to drink and he just feels horrible. And so as he's feeling worse and worse, finally, some of the other people in the house are like, well, we've, we've got to take you to the doctor. So the two men that were with him help him go find a doctor. And as he's walking out to go find a doctor, he passes out. When he wakes up, he's in a slave pen and he's chained up and all the money that they had given him, all of his papers, everything he had is gone. And he's in a slave pen, which is on Pennsylvania Avenue, just across from like the Capitol and the, and the state, uh, the, the White House and stuff. It's like within sight of these things. There was a, the Williams slave pen, which was a, quite a, a lucrative business back in the day. And so he's tied up in this place and he is he doesn't see anyone else around. He's just in chains and he's, that's where he is. So when he finally hears the doors opening, some two men walk in and he asks them some questions about where his friends are and he starts asking some other questions and things and they say, well, no, you know, they basically deny anything that he says never existed and he insists that he's a free man. And so they beat him to a bloody pulp almost to the end of his life and tell him, if you ever say you're a free man again, We'll do this again. And so after a couple of days of this treatment, he stops saying that he's a free man. And then while he's in there waiting to be sold, some other people are being brought in to this place, one of which I think is a story worth thinking about. Uh, there, was a, there was a young slave owner. This would have been on the, like the Virginia side of the river. There, so they're being brought up through here. Um, and as they, this young slave, this young plantation owner, this young couple, they were really had a horrible marriage. And so the, the man built another house and took one of his slave girls as a mistress. And so he'd been promising her that she would get her freedom. Well, their, their marriage for 1840s, I mean, think it was, it was really horrible because it turned into divorce. And in the divorce proceedings, the actual wife claimed ownership of the, the slave that was his mistress and now, you know, her husband's daughter with the mistress and claimed them, promised her that she was going to go give them their freedom and brought them down and sold them into slavery. And with 10 years, within 10 years, you know, this girl 
who on one morning was taking her little daughter by this, by this white man and is going to bring him down and she thinks she's going to get her freedom so she's all dressed up, they come down and then they're sold into slavery and within 10 years she dies in a Louisiana swamp area of a broken heart because she's just, her entire life has shattered her children, she doesn't know where her children are, she had one other son and, and she's sold into slavery. Solomon, on the other hand, is sold into slavery. He manages to get a letter written back to his wife that he has been kidnapped and sold into slavery. He doesn't know how long he's going to be gone or when he can be back. And so he's in Louisiana. He's sold multiple times. He has different kinds of masters. He has all kinds of stuff going on. And after 12 years of being many times beaten, almost hanged several times, just horribly mistreated, he is helping build a barn. And this is, he's, he's a very expensive slave because he's able to do, a lot. he's very educated because he was, he was you know, raised, but he has, in the South, he has no freedom because he's a black man and so he has no evidence for anything. And, and so everyone, you know, if he says anything wrong, it's, it's the whip for him. And so he is stuck there and he's thinking, how do I get out of here? For 12 years, he doesn't get out. He's sold multiple times. And after a, a, there's a, a time when he's building a house with one of the local abolitionists. One of the, is an abolitionist who's a contractor and he's working with Solomon on this house and Solomon is you know, building his master's house and as they're talking, the abolitionist is like, you know things that a slave would never know. For instance, Solomon has been in Canada. He knows what towns are along the rivers uh, between the United States. He knows things that no slave would ever know. And so they meet in the middle of the night and Solomon tells him his whole story. And for the abolitionists, he is in a huge bind because if he just calls in the actual law and, and frees Solomon, his own life is in danger from the white slave owners. Now, these are the white slave owners that will bring their slaves in and sit them all down and say, we're going to read the Bible. And so then they'll go to a parable of Jesus where, you know, where the, uh, the, the, there's one, was, one, one of their favorites was the vineyard one where, you know, they mistreated the other servants and then they mistreated the son and they killed the son. And what, what does the master do when he comes back? He beats them with many stripes. See, the Bible says it's our responsibility to beat you with many stripes. This is the kind of Bible instruction that they were getting. And this is important because it shows up in some of these in, in the other. So finally, after much work, the, the abolitionist didn't even put his name to the paper. He just took all the information. He wrote the letters and he sent them up to the north to Mr. Uh, so Solomon Northrup, Northup, his, uh, his, his dad had been, the, the, the man who had released them was a Northrup. And so there were a lot of, of other of these in the area, and one of them was a lawyer. And so they wrote him, they wrote a bunch of other people. Um, and so they get these letters just randomly saying, hey, this is where I am, and I need my papers, can you come get me? And so they come. There's enough loyalty, they know Solomon. They're like, yeah, he's been missing for all these years, but they know him because he's a hard worker. He's been just a normal citizen in their state. And so they come to rescue him but they don't know this down in the South. And so if things are getting worse and worse and Solomon hasn't heard, and you know, Christmas comes and goes and like, uh, and so Christmas comes 
Solomon is hired out by his owner to go play the violin at all the other plantations' uh, doings because he's good at the violin. But then when he comes home late the night before because he was playing until midnight for this thing, well, the next morning he's not out in the cotton field fast enough, so he gets a beating, a whipping. So his master is like trying to earn money from him from all different directions, right? So he's just, it's, it, and he's about to give up. And so he's made a few like contacts with the abolitionists, but they have to be very, very careful not to let anyone know who he's communicating with. And so his, the lawyer friend from up north finally gets down and finds the right person, gets all the information, and they're on the track to the plantation there in the bayou to go find Solomon. And just by pure accident, they come upon him because if his master, his master literally said, if I had known you were coming, I would have put him in the woods where you never would have found him. His master was not looking for justice, but his master was a Christian, would have claimed to be a member of a church, would have claimed to not only be a Bible believer, but to teach other people about the Bible. And this is important for us because there is something in all of this for us to learn. But the, eventually, they get him back up to Washington, D.C. They actually file a lawsuit against the two guys who were running the racket that, that kidnapped him, the actual people, not the two men that went and got him and brought him to Washington, D.C. and tinted his drink and stuff, but the other two guys, the ones that beat him with an inch of his life. Well, these guys... They're used to this. And so they have all these witnesses that say, oh yeah, yeah, we knew him when he was a boy. He played the violin on so-and-so plantation. Yeah, he was, not, he was never a free man. And so they went through the whole court system and he couldn't make anything stick on them. But he was a free man because he had enough witnesses that they said, no, this is a free man. And so it was a weird, weird time for justice in America. And this is important, I think, for us to realize because there's times when we look at our own times and we think there's so much injustice and this is so different from any other time. No, this is still the same. Whenever we have people who are depraved and given over to sin, there is injustice. And it makes no sense. It's not logical. It's demonic. And so this is what was happening. And so as I'm thinking through this, I'm just reading The Twelve Years a Slave by Solomon Northup. And I'm, I'm thinking through this and I'm thinking, you know, well, the Egyptians were enslaved. And we actually have this from the Ten Commandments, uh, Exodus 20, verse 17, where it literally says, it's a command about coveting, but it includes not to covet your um, neighbor's slave. So Exodus 20, verse 17. And it just, you know... I don't think I've ever fully understood or thought about this as in the Ten Commandments. And it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. And to think of slavery in the context that it's so much a part of my culture that when God gives the Ten Commandments that he says, don't covet your neighbor's slaves, along with don't covet your neighbor's donkey, and his wife, like, I'm like, this feels like three very different things to me. And yet, there it is. And so there is a deeper heart here that I'm still digging for. But, so we had this, you know, Egypt was enslaved in, I mean, Israel was enslaved in Egypt. 
And so my question here is, is, is the slavery that is propounded or talked about here in the law, is this in some way more merciful than what was normal or even what the Israelites went through? I don't know this, but it's something to think about. So do I understand? Do I get the context, the culture, et cetera? No. What is, what is the heart of God? Do I get this? I, I don't think I fully understand all of this. So it's good for me to ask these questions because it can rock me. It can rock my world. So now I have two more excerpts I wanted to read out of the American Citizen book by Bishop Hopkins. So he starts this section by saying, well, I'll just read this paragraph. It's a long paragraph. It says, here then, we take African slavery as a fact. So he's moved past a lot of the, what the Bible says, what other things say. He's just saying, let's just talk about the fact. Now, he lives in Vermont. He's traveled quite a bit. He's had a lot of conversations. Uh, this is 1857 when this book is released. In 1850, he did a whole series of lectures talking about slavery. Um, so he's talked a lot about this. We also know that in general, he didn't like the way the Baptists of the time would like become abolitionists or temperance or even have the revivals. He didn't like all the excitement. Like if you think of the Wesleyans or the, Men- the, the, the Methodists or the Baptists, he liked his religion to be calm and uh, and very much based on those facts and nothing, you know, don't get too excited about anything. And so we find various evidences of his involvement at different times, like when, when D.L. Moody um, was later coming through that whole area, one of the organizers was coming to uh, Bishop Hopkins and saying, can you come and sit on the board with us and help us solve all of this? And Hopkins was like, so who else is coming? He's like, no, I can't do that because what you're trying to do is excite people into thinking that they have made a decision for Jesus when they really just need to live for Jesus. When I read what he said, I kind of agreed with him. But when I thought about how I would feel in that day and age, if someone said, hey, we're going to have a revival meetings down here and Bishop so-and-so says, absolutely not, I won't be involved in it. I'd be like, What's wrong with this bishop? Like what's, and so I had to put myself, because when I read something, I will often feel um, somewhat some empathy for what the writer is saying, but I have to understand what this really means, how it sounds in real flesh and blood, and do I agree with this guy or not? And so here he's writing about African slavery. So he says first, we may compare the condition of the slaves with our own condition as free men and mourn to our heart's content over the restraints, the hardships, the ignorance, the immorality of their bondage. And imagine how much happier they would be if they were all emancipated and placed in our own circumstances. But is this a fair or just process of comparison? Suppose them to be emancipated. Would that enable them to ascend to our level? The answer is obvious when we look at those who, already, who are already free. So he doesn't think they would. And it is the testimony of all candid observers. So he makes a lot of generalities in this book. It is the testimony of all candid observers that the free Negro, other things being equal, is in a worse condition than the slave, physically and morally, less happy, less healthy, less contented, less secure, less religious, It is notorious that many of those who had escaped have returned to their masters of their own accord, glad to escape from the wretchedness of their freedom. This is what this guy's writing. He's quite influential in his day. It is notorious that in the southern states, the slaves look down upon the free Negroes with pity. 
and often with disdain as being altogether in a position inferior to their own. For they, them, they feel themselves to be connected for life with the family of their master, sure of protection, sure of a comfortable home, sure of a plentiful, plentiful subsistence, sure of kind attendance in sickness and old age, and sure of affection and confidence unless they forfeit them by unfaithfulness or rebellion. These advantages are lost to the free Negro, and the slaves have no difficulty in understanding that he has nothing to replace them. True, they must work, but so must the free Negro. So must the laboring class in every civilized community. And when we compare their condition with that of our own hirelings, there are many points which seem to be greatly in their favor. For their work is light and regular as a general rule. They have abundant time allowed for recreation and for holidays. They're not, like the free laborer, liable to be dismissed at a moment's warning and forced to beg or suffer for want of work to do. And he continues on in this vein. And he even goes over here saying how, you know, the, how the master feels for his slaves because they are his own and all of this. He, he writes all this. And what's, what's fascinating to me is that if there was someone in the United States today that would write this, it would be a free-for-all because we say, you're ridiculous. And yet here was a man who's respected. He represents the church. He represents the word of God. He's very involved in building seminaries. He's involved with like the, the people that came to bring the gospel to Colorado were people that he sent out. Like he was part of the body that was sending out people out here. And so we have a bishop that came out here and planted a whole bunch of churches in Colorado from here up to Montana. You can read about it. You can see people coming to Christ because of this man's work. Uh, most of the Anglican or e churches that you see, the way they're built, uh, they're actually built on designs that this guy wrote up, like that he, he drew up plans. Like he's a very, very unique guy, but this is his position on slavery. And he, if you want to, you can read the whole chapter preceding where he goes through and takes all the scriptures, way more than what I just read, and explains why. And he says it this way. He says, it's not, uh, you know, we have, he says here uh, in chapter 9, He's talking about the expediency of abolition. He says, I have defended frankly and fully the lawfulness of African slavery in the Southern states from the scriptures, from the principles of true philanthropy and from the constitution, which he does. He goes through, um, I was just reading you from the true philanthropy part. But he says, the expediency of its continuance continues to the interests of the South and of the Union is a different question. And as this is a subject to which I have given years ago considerable reflection, I shall here repeat the general process of thought by which I arrived at my conclusions. And so then he starts going in and explaining that if a slave owner is going to actually make money with slaves, well, you have to feed a child, a slave child from the time they're tiny all the way up till they're old enough to work. And then you get this many years of work out of them. And then once they're no longer able to work at their full capacity, you have to take Take care of them until they die. And so he then propounds, like literally in our day, we would say he makes a spreadsheet and says why it's a bad idea and that the slave owners are actually at a, at, are the ones who are actually suffering because it's an economically bad setup. And so you read it and you're like, say what? What about the slave and his freedom? And, and, but he makes it. And so as you think about those things, you know, it's, to me, it's horrific to read through that. It's just like, what is going on? And then, you know, in 12 Years a Slave, I thought this was good. He writes, there may be humane masters, as there certainly are inhuman ones. There may be slaves well-clothed, well-fed, and happy, as there surely are those half-clad, half-starved, and miserable. Nevertheless, the institution that tolerates such wrong and inhumanity as I have witnessed is a cruel, 
unjust and barbarous one. Men may write fictions portraying lowly life as it is or as it is not, may expatiate with allish gravity upon the bliss of ignorance, discourse flippantly from armchairs of the pleasures of slave life, but let them toil with him in the field, sleep with him in the cabin, feed with him on husks, let him behold him scourged, hunted, trampled on, and they will come back with another story in their mouths. Let them know the heart of the poor slave, learn his secret thoughts, thoughts he dare not utter in the hearing of a white man, let them sit by him in the silent watches of the night, converse with him in trustful confidence of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and they will find that 99 out of every 100 are intelligent enough to understand their situation and to cherish in their bosoms the love of freedom as passionately as themselves. And so I, I found it fascinating because this book was actually written by Solomon uh, when the abolitionists asked him, can you write your account? And he was like, sure. And so he, he had a, a, an editor that worked with him to actually put it all together, but he came in and spoke the whole story. And so in this particular story, what happens here is that there is actual loss of life that is threatened. There is kidnapping that happens. There are all the evils. And so while it is one thing for Bishop Hopkins to sit up in Vermont and say, well, you know, according to the scripture, there's slavery here and, and Christ himself never says, you've got to let all the slaves go free and all of this other stuff there. And he can, he can make this, this, this big argument from the Constitution, from Bible, all this other stuff, and say that slavery in and of itself is not immoral, the, that it was not even the point at the time that what was happening here is because American slavery was not entirely built on someone running out of money and saying, hey, I'm going to sell myself to you so that you can... It was, it was built on someone going to another country and kidnapping people and bringing them here. That kidnapping by itself, according to the Scripture, was a, an offense worthy of death. And so the immorality is in the roots of this right from the beginning. And so it is possible for someone to use scripture and to pick here and pick there, but when you look at the whole of the issue, we are justified in our perspective and looking back and being horrified by the slavery that happened in America. Now, there, we, America is such a funny place because we were also the first place for, in any of the Western world for a black man to hold office. As early as 1640s, we had a black man in office in America. England, I think, took until eight, 1987, and Russia waited until 2010. And so we were way ahead of our time in having black people in office and such, right? At the same time, we had this horrible scourge of slavery. So because of the freedom that we have here, we are literally giving ourselves and each other often the freedom to sin against God, trusting that God himself will actually come and, and bring justice into to the lives of people. And so my, my whole discourse on this this morning has been just me using two of the books that I read and thought about as I'm thinking about slavery, but there is, there is so much more that's here, but I think the heart of what's here is, yes, we can go back and say, let's talk about context, let's talk about culture, and then let's talk about the heart of God. What is God's heart? And what we find from the beginning of scripture onward is that there is not a person on earth that God cannot save. 
There's not a person on earth that if they come to Christ, Christ will not transform them and fill them with himself and turn them into something beautiful and wonderful. And is it possible for a slave to make an impact for the kingdom of heaven? Yes, Daniel was a slave. And so we have instances where you know, Daniel is one of those slaves who he listened to what Paul said years later, and he did not fret that he was a slave. He said, how can I serve the Lord where I am? And he did, but he insisted on the word of God and he stood on the word of God and he suffered, but did not die. God preserved him and used him. And so is it possible for God to use you if you find yourself in a place of servitude? Yes, there is. Is it moral for us as believers to stand by and say, well, you know, um, technically this could be fine when really it's not, when there's such a huge issue? No, that's immoral. And so for the Christians who were trying to make the case for this, like poor Bishop Hopkins, I, I, I appreciate the man in so many ways, but like, because he said that um, slavery itself, that there was a biblical way to do slavery, all the abolitionists hated him. But because he said also that it was not expedient and that it was not the best way, um, that what the South was doing wasn't the best, then all the South also hated him. And so because he tried to like get in the middle, he really, uh, nobody liked him. Nobody wanted him to come and speak at their abolitionist events. They made the mistake, I think, once of having him come and speak at an abolitionist event. And he came and just, smash them like okay and so so there's this there's this reality now that we have to bring home to us and say what are we looking at what is our culture because in our day and age there is also a culture there is still slavery there is still uh, you know it doesn't look the same um, there are still things that are happening so we can get involved in uh, in stopping the sex trade we can get involved in um, the abolition of abortion. There's so many ways that we can be working to preserve life, but there is a deeper important calling that we must not miss. And that is the heart of God for all people. And so I just wanted to read these two like this. Um, Psalm 68 has a few verses I want to read. Psalm 68 verses four to six. All right, it says in Psalm 68, verse four, sing to God, sing praises to his name, extol him who rides on the clouds by his name, Yah, and rejoice before him, a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy habitation. God sets the family, or God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. So this is just talking about who God is and how he interacts with people. Well, he takes those who are solitary, he puts them in families. He is a defender of widows. He is a father of the fatherless. So there's something about the heart of God that we're seeing here. And this is important because as believers, we say that we have the spirit of the living God within us. And so that would mean that God himself is able to work through us and flow to the nations around us, his heart. So if the father heart of God is going to flow through us, we don't want to be holding it back because of some misunderstanding we have. So what was happening, I think, is that people like Bishop Hopkins were missing the father heart of God while going for the technicality of the law. They were saying, well, according to scripture, da -da, da -da, we can dot these I's and cross these T's. And yes, see, it's okay. But they were missing the real heart of what God was after. And so because of that, they were blinded and it really that the behavior and the inhumanity of the treatment from the men that were beating other men and just the stuff that they would do, it's nothing short of demonic when you look at it. 
And so even in our day and age, when you look at people who are now defending abortion and who are trying and are using scripture to invite others to come get abortions and stuff, it's demonic. It's gone past logic. It's gone past, you know, looking at law and, and trying to figure something out. It's gone beyond that. There's a spiritual battle that's happening. And so we don't want to go into a spiritual battle thinking that we can bring logic to bear on the case because I think he thought he was altogether reasonable and he was altogether helpful and that if everyone would just listen to him, pretty soon the scourge of slavery would be gone and things would be restored correctly and everyone would be taken care of. But he didn't understand that he was missing the deeper heart of God because because God's heart was not, um, uh, well, we are too prejudiced here for slaves to amount to anything. No, God's heart was like any man, anywhere, any that is walking in the spirit will love every other man that's out there. And if two men are walking in the spirit together, they together will be helping build up. They will become a defender of the widow, a father to the fatherless. This is who God is calling us. And so if you look over in Isaiah 61, we have the scripture that Jesus quoted when he came. This is really part of the mission statement of the church because we bear Christ in us. We have the spirit of the Lord within us. Jesus himself quotes this in Luke 4 when he's in the synagogue. So six, uh, Isaiah 61, verse 1, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. And this was an issue. In the southern states, no matter what, he, notwithstanding what all he thought might be happening down there, whatever his reports were, the reality was there were lots of broken hearts. A lot of brokenhearted people, because families were split. It was horrible. And it says here that God has sent, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified." What had been proven multiple times in the North was that when a master said, you know, I'm going to give you your freedom, and yes, I know you're destitute and you have nothing, so I'm going to allow you to keep living in this house on my property, and you can keep working for me, but I'm going to pay you now. That within a very short amount of time, these people were very industrious, and they would earn enough to be able to go buy their own house. And they were able to do that over and over again, this happened. And so this whole idea that, well, the slaves would be worse off if they were free, only if the rest of society was depraved and was full of, and was not actually helping and loving their brother. If the rest of society said, well, yeah, your people, we're gonna help you, here's jobs, here's work. There was no reason for them to suffer more if they were free than if they were not. These are the kind of, the, the holistic approach that we have to take is when we talk about any truth, when we talk about any scripture, when we talk about any problem and we're trying to solve it, like with the, with the um, abolitionist movement against abortion, for years people have said, well, yeah, you just want, don't want to take care of girls. And yet in reality, when you look out across America, there are so many pregnancy, crisis pregnancy centers that are run by Christians and believers who really do love people and provide for them everything they need. Um, according to the sign outside of the Hope House over here next to us in Arvada, they've had, in this year alone, they've held like over 200 teenage moms in our greater Denver area in some way. I might have the number a little bit off, but it was, it was way more than I expected. And so they were really 
there, we as a church has been really doing a lot of work. And we haven't been saying, oh, it's just wrong and you know, they needed to stop it. We've actually been doing something to help. And so this is true for true believers everywhere. And so when you find a, a, a Christian man or woman and they, they find themselves in that place where they have some influence, they will seek the Lord because Christ said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me and this is what he's called me to do. And we say, I am a Christian. I belong to him. The spirit of the Lord God is also upon me. What has he called me to do? And we find ways to help and to bring justice where there is no justice. And so for me to just bring the Bible and try to preach to these slaves that they need to obey me or I'm going to beat them with many stripes, that is a horrible misuse of authority. But it is not the only misuse of authority. It's an easy one to point out and say, look at that. That was spiritual abuse. That was, that was every kind of abuse you can think of. That was physical. That was, oh, that's horrible. But there are things that you and I, when we look at, that we don't fully understand what we're doing and so I wanted to look at one more, Romans 6, 16, in closing. And in Romans 6, it's talking very specifically about us, about the old man being dead and the new man being born in Christ. And in verse 16, Romans 6, verse 16, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? And then verse 17, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And so Paul is using the picture of slavery to say, look, you, don't you understand that if you're bound by these actions and emotions that you're actually a slave of sin? And if I take this and look at my life and look at the life of America, I can see, oh, Many of us are slaves to sin. And one of the things that I think made a huge impact on me that was one of the saddest things in recent years was, you know, about 15 years ago, I heard Ravi Zacharias talking and he was talking about pleasure. And he was talking about the legitimate forms of pleasure. And one of the phrases he uses when he's talking about what real pleasure is and what is rightful pleasure, he used this phrase. He said, any pleasure that jeopardizes the sacred right of another is an illicit pleasure. And so he said that and he had other things so that you could look at the pleasures in your life. You know, if your pleasure, if the pleasure, the things you're doing actually refresh you and help you and, and like help you actually stay focused on your mission, that's good. But if it infringes or jeopardizes the sacred right of another, it is an illicit pleasure. And I still believe that, what he said. But what was really really destructive to, you know, and discouraging to me personally was that after he was dead, the voices that had been silenced for so long spoke up and the accusations were made that for years he had been using illicit pleasure for himself and excusing it by saying, well, I am so lonely over here because I am the only Christian leader that can do all of this work and God has no one else. And so because of that, God lets me do these things. And so he was using scripture, so to speak, or his, his status as a, as, as a Christian, as a, an apologetics, he was using that to hide his own sin, and he was a slave of sin, according to Romans. And so when I look at that, and I think of all of us, you know, we can say stuff like, well, slavery was wrong, or abortion is wrong, or the sex trade is awful, and all of those things are true, but if we really, really 
want to help and change things, I think it's important that we look at ourselves and say, well, what am I enslaved to? Can I truly say that I have come up to the doorpost of heaven and said, here, put that all through my ear. I'm going to serve you forever. Have I done that? Am I his forever? Or am I still in bondage somewhere else over here? Because there is freedom and victory from every kind of bondage in America. There is no need to be bound to pleasure. There's no need to be bound, like the whole sex trade. Like if, even if just the church in America would stop looking at pornography, suddenly the industry would be cut in half. And this is true across the world. If Christians would stop speaking with double-mindedness and would not be slaves of sin, um, then a lot of the other slavery would be taken care of. And so it's one thing for us to say, I can't believe this horrible stuff is happening, and then secretly to be engaging in the very product that continues to enable it, that's wickedness. And so we have to do something. And so this is important for me to think about this. You know, in, in the Hebrew slave, six years a slave, and then you'll be free. Um, this guy wrote 12 years he was a slave, and then finally his, you know, Someone came to his defense and he was rescued and he was made free. And then we have the year of Jubilee in the Old Testament where people would be made free and be restored to their inheritance. Well, there is an inheritance that you and I have and it is in the Holy Spirit and it has to do with all of these freedoms. There is not a need for us to be in bondage to sin any longer. We can be free. And this is, I think, the heart of God is that each one of us is able to look at how am I in bondage? How am I the one who, is, who has only ashes left for my righteousness? I think so many times when the, when the woman in Canada first talked about Ravi Zacharias and everyone worked so hard to silence her, if they would have just listened and let him repent while he was alive, it would have been so good for the church. But they silenced him as hard as they could, or her, and then later, a bunch of other people go, well, actually, that's true. That's wickedness. And so I don't know if there are ways in which we are silencing the voices that are pointing out our own slavery and our own problems, but it's important for us to think about this because, sure, uh, you know, we've said this before, if everyone is a believer, if everyone is fully sanctified, then any form of government could work because we would everyone's a believer. Everyone loves Jesus. Everyone's full of the Holy Spirit. Everyone's full of kindness and love and compassion for each other. But it only takes a few people to not be full of the Holy Spirit and then suddenly no government really works. And so for us to try to impose a standard on people while we ourselves are still enslaved is a problem. And I think this is what was happening here is sure, there were so many things that Bishop Hopkins did that were good and helpful. There's so much he did for the church and for beauty and for other things. Sure, but there were some basic problems. And I think we might have the same situation. And so while we don't deal with slavery, we deal with a lot of other issues that in the years to come, if we were ever to get to that point, um, like right now we have an epidemic of, of pornography. And if we ever get to the point where that is not an issue, we would say, how was it that the church could preach against pornography, but then, a, or, or against sex slaves and all that mark, the stuff that was happening over there, we preached against it while secretly indulging in pornography. What was going on there? We've got to deal with that. And that is true. As believers, we need to deal with that. We've got to talk about it. We've got to say, what are the sins that are besetting and enslaving us and our people? Because in America, it's bad. 
I don't know what the correlation was to how many uh, black slaves we had in America in the 1850s to the rest of the population. But I think of the, the amount of people that we have enslaved to pornography today, just in the church, it's a huge percentage. It's something like 50 plus percent and more. And so this is a big deal. And so this is something for us to, to think about, to pray about, but then to also learn how to talk about these things in a way that we're not just assuming. Like wh- when I read Bishop Hopkins' thing, what I really start hearing is I hear the crackle of the, of the fireplace in Vermont. It's a beautiful place, a beautiful study. And he's sitting there. He's very, very comfortable. And he's very far removed from all the slavery issues down south. So whatever people write to him, whatever he hears, whatever he reads in the newspaper, I don't, he had a chance to read this book. I don't know if he did. It was published in time. Whatever he's reading, he's filtering through the comfort of his armchair by his fireplace. And then he writes his papers and people are like, wow, you're so wise. And I fear that we would do the same thing, that we feel like the issue is so far removed from us that we're not having to deal with it. And yet it's here, it's home. What is in my heart? Am I truly a slave to righteousness? Am I a slave of Jesus? Or am I still a slave of sin in some way? And so this is the question for us to ask. And I know it's a weird way of, of getting to this message, but I'm just talking about slavery today. And honestly, it's been a, it is a weird topic for us in our time. But it's in the Bible, and it has been a problem throughout the world since the world began. And even today, there are still people being kidnapped and used for purposes that they don't want to do and made to work in places they don't want to work. They're still drugging people, still kidnapping them, still, and, and it's horrible. And so I want to make sure that in whatever part we get to play, that we can play that with integrity and with the heart of the Father who truly wants to bring freedom to the captives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and your word to us. Thank you that you do proclaim liberty to the captives. Thank you that you take the stuff that feels to us like it's been burned and is nothing left but ashes and you turn it into something beautiful. And so, Father, I'm praying for us and, us and all of us who are listening and just for our influence in the church. Lord, help us to be honest. Help us to be truly bond slaves of Jesus. That we're not in bondage to sin, but that we're in bondage to Christ. That we're yours. That we're following you so that we can truly rescue the brokenhearted and comfort them. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.